Yip Talk, the Your Investment Property Podcast. Market uncertainty makes it challenging for investors to understand where we are and where we're headed. In this important episode of Yip Talk, our host Sarah Meganson is joined by Simon Buckingham, Director and Results Coach with Results Mentoring. Sarah and Simon discuss the current landscape and what investors need to know to better forecast where we are heading. of Yip Talk, your investment properties property podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, uh, get you updated on all the latest trends and news that's happening in the real estate market. Today, our guest is Simon Buckingham, Director and Mentor at Results Mentoring. Thank you for joining us, Simon. It's a pleasure, Sarah. Great to be here. Thank you. It is um, excellent to talk to you. You're someone who has a wealth of experience in this area. Um, I think now more than ever, we need to be looking to experts that have some real uh, runs on the board, so to speak, because this is a really uh, uncertain time, to borrow an overused phrase. Um, But we do kind of need to look at what has happened historically to give us a sense of calm or a sense of, um, you can't really control, but a sense of understanding about what might be happening next. Um, And so one of the areas I wanted to talk to you about today is the forecasting that's happening at the moment. It seems like every bank has unleashed their economist on the media to give their forecasts of where they think property markets are headed. And there's some pretty scary numbers being thrown about there, aren't there? Oh, there certainly are. I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. It is more important than ever right now for property investors to to be informed and to be getting their information from um, uh, sensible. Yeah, I think it's more important than ever for property investors to be well informed at the moment. And it can be difficult to tell fact from fiction and certainly fact from opinion. We are bombarded by plenty of scary and attention-grabbing headlines, what we'd call clickbait, um, I guess. But... Uh, the more alarmist a headline is, the more attention it'll grab and the more, of course, we get exposed to the advertising of the relevant media channel that's put that forward. Uh, and it can be difficult then to make uh, informed decisions to be able to understand how to separate our emotions or our emotional reaction to an alarming headline from what's really going on. And over the years that, that I've been investing in and over the the um, hundreds of um uh, people that I've mentored over the years and, and seen how they've gone in the market. Um, it, it's taught me a lot about the property market over those years and, and what uh, makes the property market tick. What is it that really drives it? So whilst no one has a crystal ball and no one can know precisely exactly what the market's going to do in six months from now, 12 months from now, 24 months from now, you can make reasoned assumptions and you can use data, information, statistics and trends and both past and present trends to understand what is most likely to happen. And as investors, that's really what we need to be doing. We need to be making our decisions based on an informed assessment of what is most likely to happen in the market. And the reality is that the extreme views are usually not correct. Um, almost never correct, in fact, and the reality will usually lie somewhere in between the ultra-optimistic and the ultra-pessimistic views. But you're right, we have seen a lot of um, quite alarming type headlines in there. We've had um, various banks and economists come out with their predictions and forecasts, and it's been quite a 
a spread. It's been fascinating to see the range of the predictions that are out there from uh, predictions around about uh, maybe a dip in property prices of 5 to 10% as a result of the coronavirus impact, right up to 30% or even 50% price falls being predicted. Uh, it's quite extraordinary to see that sort of a range. And, and one thing we know for sure is they can't all be right. Um, you know, someone has to be right, someone has to be wrong in these forecasts, but why are they so different? Um, now, on the one hand, we've had um, some of the banks like the NAB coming out and uh, forecasting a fall of, say, 10 to 15 percent across 2020 to 2021. Um, we've had the ANZ with a similar forecast, a 10 percent peak to trough decline with a rebound in late 2021. And then um, the headline that, that really jumped out uh, not so long ago in early May was um, on the back of CBA's forecasts. And of course, the headline picked up the most extreme forecast that CBA had put out there, which was the idea of a 32% price fall. Uh, but what was easy to miss in that particular headline, if you didn't actually read the article and the information behind it, was that that was CBA's worst case scenario. And they were uh, seeing a more realistic case of in the low teens as a uh, potential price fall. And their 32% price fall was also um, an extreme scenario under a prolonged slump. So it wasn't 32% all in And that is year. such an important distinction, isn't it? And I think you're exactly right. People who just read the headline and don't read the article don't realise that even CBA was saying in the briefing, if you read it, um, that the chance of a 30% wholesale fall in prices was very unlikely. And they were putting that out there as their worst case scenario if unemployment figures were sustained at double digit figures for 12 months or longer, then they could see this as the worst case scenario. But of course, mainstream media picked up prices to fall by 32% and it became, you know, everywhere for about a week, you just saw prices to fall 30%. And the problem with that is it becomes um, something of a self-fulfilling prophecy where people start to read that, start to believe that, see it repeated everywhere, see it published in reputable, you know, websites and newspapers and then start to just believe it's fact without inquiring too much um, as to what the reality of that situation is. That's, that's right. I mean, as investors, we should always question what we're being told. Uh, you know, we're taught that we should uh, have a certain amount of due diligence on any property transaction, but that equally goes for what we read about and understand about the property market. We need to question what we're being told and try to read beyond the headlines and understand what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, it's been fascinating since that headline um, and with uh, some better than expected data starting to come out around uh, how well the coronavirus is being managed in Australia and the, the level of economic impact and so on, that CBA has since walked back that position anyway and are now forecasting more of a 5 to 10% potential property price fall as well. Wow. But Lincoln, you'd miss it because that sort of headline doesn't grab a lot of attention, so it's not really no. up. That's so interesting, isn't it? And and it's actually quite um, reckless and dangerous because people that don't know to investigate further or, you know, the worst-case scenario that I see and I get friends and colleagues and things messaging me when they see it pop up on a morning TV show uh, where, you know, it's a two-minute break very quickly. There's not much analysis and it'll just say uh, CBA forecasts prices to fall up to 32%. And I was getting messages from people saying, is this true? Do I need to sell now? What should I do? And, 
you know, that kind of stirs up some panic and it's really, um, it can be quite dangerous and put a lot of stress on people that doesn't need to be there because the reality is that a forecast is not always right. Um, I've been a finance and property journalist for 15 years and the amount of forecasts that have been wrong far outweighs the amount of forecasts that get it right. Um, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Uh, every every uh, Australian has an opinion on, on property and uh, also <laughs> a bunch of overseas commentators have an opinion on the um, on the Australian property market as well. And uh, it's 99% of them are going to be wrong. They're going to be incorrect. And yet we love reading about them when we, we immerse ourselves in them and we get fooled into the idea that there's some sort of fact behind this. But if you look at the track records behind these, these forecasts, it, there are not many forecasters who've actually... Um, got the majority of their forecasts correct. The banks in particular um, are, it's almost a running joke inside the banks. If you, if you talk to people who work for the banks and who um, have connections with the economists in the banks, that almost inevitably, whatever forecasts the, the bank economists come out with on house prices end up being wrong. Um, uh, for instance, if we go back uh, about 18 months or so, back at the beginning of 2019, the NAB was forecasting that that house prices would fall across 2019 by 3.8% in ag aggregate, with Sydney and Melbourne dropping by more than 5%. But the actual outcome across 2019 was that capital city prices rose, um, and by the end of 2019, they'd gone up by over 2%, with Sydney up and Melbourne up, not down at all. So Sydney had gone up by about 6% and Melbourne up over 4%. So you've got a 10% variance between where the bank in that instance was forecasting property prices would go to and where they actually ended up 12 months later. Um, and it's, it's that that's where we've got to take these sort of forecasts with a bit of a grain of salt. As much money and resources as the banks and economists and uh, various analytical institutions throw at forecasting, um, they are attempting to model something that has a huge number of variables. Um, and they're also attempting to forecast at a very high level, which is not at all um, how the, the property market operates. Um, we don't have one property market in this country. It's a collection of 15,000 suburbs and towns, um, each of which performs differently. So in order to get a good understanding of where the market's going to go, you really need to be doing your analysis at that level. But that's not where most of these forecasts come from and they get it dramatically and wrong. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing when you see a, a forecast like that, prices to fall, even if it says 5 to 10%, 30%, it doesn't actually matter what the figure is. But when they say Australian property prices to fall, for me I tune out immediately because there is no one Australian property market. There's You can't even really say Sydney because if you go to Sydney there are micro markets within Sydney there's western Sydney and there's eastern suburbs and there's northern suburbs and they all have their own kind of micro drivers within each area so when you take that broad strokes approach it just um you can't you you give up accuracy um in an in an area that's already quite inaccurate you know you're forecasting to begin with and you're using a lot of really we've got so much great data at our fingertips now and you're using a lot of really rich resources and good data, but you're still making an educated guess. And then when it gets applied in this broad way, it just dilutes some of the um, 
the the value of it, I guess. Co- correct, and and this is why we get these extreme views. Um, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of the time they seem to come from U.S. authors who are on a seminar tour or have a book to sell, where we get told, you know, this time Australia's housing market's going to drop by fifty yes. percent. Um, I think we had uh, one uh, Harry Dent out here not so long ago um, promoting exactly that view. And yet, um, if you look at those sort of forecasts over history, they've been consistently wrong. You know, when property prices have been forecast to crash, they've actually gone up. Or if they have gone down, they've gone down by a far lesser amount, you know, single digit sort of falls um, in, in the time periods when we've been told they could fall by 20 or 50%. The, the part of the reason why these forecasters consistently get it wrong is because they treat the Australian housing market as one homogenous market, almost like the share market, where um, you know if there's um, an event, the whole market moves in one direction altogether, and that doesn't actually happen in property at all. Uh, even during um, times like the global financial crisis, past recessions, we've had some suburbs actually rising in value, whilst other suburbs were steady and and some suburbs were falling in value. It wasn't like all property fell um, when the market supposedly fell. So it is something we have to bear in mind as investors. We don't buy Australia when we buy a property. We don't even buy Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or Adelaide or Brisbane. We, We buy a property being a house or a unit or a block of land in a suburb. And so what we're most interested in, where you have to keep your perspective focused as an investor, and it enables you to cut through all of this noise in the media when you do this, you want to focus in on what is happening in the suburb where I'm interested in buying property or where I actually own property to the type of property that I own or I'm planning to buy. Mm, That's a really important point too, because um, even when you drill down into that suburb level, apartments and houses are going to perform differently. And a three-bedroom house is going to perform differently to a four-bedroom house and the specific street you're on. Um, you know, I, I own um, property in an area on the Gold Coast and I did have two houses in this neighbourhood and when we sold one a couple of years ago, our agent was giving us really specific feedback and she's like, well, if you were over this side of the freeway, that has higher demand and you, you got an extra 10% and if you're over this side, you know, if you're near the school or if you're near this, like there are little dynamics at play that will influence the the demand for your property, who wants to live there, all of those types of things that can impact the value of your home. So even if there is this broader market um, fall of, say, 10%, um, how that's going to impact your specific investment or your street um, still has a lot of variables at play, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's correct. At the end of the day, the the property market is driven by two fundamental forces: it's supply and demand. And where the where the headlines and these forecasters constantly get it wrong, is that they they see something that's going to impact demand. So whether it's a a global financial crisis or the coronavirus um, and the economic impact of that, meaning that some people um, you know might have their jobs under threat, their income's been reduced. So they're not going to be out there buying properties and, and as a result, they, they pull back. And so demand falls. But that's only one side of the equation because if supply drops at the same time, so people stop listing their properties for sale or they pull their properties off the market or there was never a high supply in that suburb to begin with, that fall in demand doesn't necess- necessarily cause 
a fall in price, or if, it, if the prices do fall, they don't necessarily fall sharply. And it's a very different scenario to what we might have seen, say, at the end of the uh, resources mining boom, where certain towns that were reliant on a single industry, like a mine, and that mine, well, that mining company stopped renting houses in that area. And so there was mass vacancy um, and people therefore stopped buying houses. So there was a massive loss of demand, but supply stayed constant in that area. Um, or even went up because investors were trying to bail out, that caused prices to crash in those areas. But you can't apply that model to the the broader Australian market or markets um, because you don't have that sort of unusual set of dynamics. And what we're actually seeing happening at the moment, um, and this is um, being borne out in what we're seeing is just a gentle softening in prices in some areas, is that um, whilst there's less demand because people have hesitated, that we've had the lockdowns, which has made it obviously very difficult for people to go out and inspect properties. Um, you've had auctions uh, off the table for a while so that uh, it becomes even more difficult to bring a property to market. You've had both a reduction in demand and a corresponding reduction in supply. Um, and rather than sell properties and, or, or take a bath on price, a lot of vendors have just gone, well, I'm just not going to sell now. I'm not going to list my property or I'm going to actually withdraw my property from the market. And that that action of both supply and demand coming down has meant that we're not seeing extreme price falls and we're unlikely to see extreme price falls as a result. That's the interesting part, isn't it? Because when when this corona started and I was following the data quite closely and you could see that supply was falling in line with demand so it's it's almost like everyone left the market buyers and sellers left and the only ones that were left were those who were either desperate to sell or buy so that they'd already committed to another house so they needed to sell or they'd already sold their house and they needed to buy or there's you know quite a lot of activity in that first month of people who needed to but if you weren't in a position where you had to take action the kind of universal response was let's just sit this one out let's just stay put and see where things land and we'll make a a decision later on in the year so in that respect um when do you think we'll start seeing some changing decisions uh september seems to be a bit of a benchmark month because that's when job keeper packages are due to expire and that's when uh, the the rental pause sorry the mortgage pauses are due to start to come off so do you think september is a time when we're going to see activity or or attitudes change a little bit well, I think we're already seeing attitudes um, changing to some degree um, on the on the ground um, in a positive way in that consumer sentiment uh, is generally being reported as improving. Um, so in spite of the fact that we've had um, significant uh, job losses, a significant rise in unemployment at the moment, and obviously there are concerns on the horizon in terms of what happens when um, some of these stimulus measures and loan repayment holidays begin to be wound back. Um, at the moment, um, there are early indications of an actual pickup in sentiment, and that tends to translate through into a pickup in, in demand as well. Uh, so some of the early indicators that we're seeing in the data at the moment are that uh, both the, the the number of players in the market um, and to a, a, an extent, the number of listings in the market is gradually creeping up as well. So we're likely to see an increase in volume of transactions over the coming months. In terms of September, and uh, the so-called fiscal cliff that gets bandied around by the media <laughs> at the moment. Um, I think we need to, to, to bear in mind that um, 
uh, our government, whatever your political leanings might be, um, our government is not does not consist entirely of stupid people. And um, we've seen the the effort and energy that's been put in to date and the money that's been put in to date in terms of um, the measures to try and help businesses through this period of time, to try and help shore up people's incomes and to also shore up the financial system by giving um, a lot of lenders, a lot of borrowers rather, um, repayment holidays on their loans for three to six months. Um, that effort isn't suddenly going to evaporate on 30 September. Um, it is more likely and more realistic in my view to expect that there will be more of a gradual unwinding of these things or alternative stimulus measures will be put in place to help buffer the impact of things like JobKeeper eventually coming to an end. Um, the lenders themselves have already indicated um, across several of the major lenders um, a willingness to to look at potentially extending um, some of their loan repayment holidays or helping people by switching them over to interest-only payments, for instance. Um, so the, the banks themselves don't want to suddenly be faced with an issue where they've got a, a sudden jump of in the number of people who can't service their loans um, and they don't want to be getting into the market and having to foreclose. The banks don't want that. The Reserve Bank certainly doesn't want that. The regulators don't want that. And the federal government doesn't want that. So we can that, expect that, that there'll that be other measures put in place to, to help mitigate that. That's the missing piece, I think, that sometimes people get a bit confused on or that, you know, banks get seen as working against you and it can certainly feel like that sometimes as someone who's in the middle of a refinance at the moment. <laughs> I can, yeah, I'm sure we've all, we've all got our stories, haven't we? Yeah, it feels like you are on opposite sides of the coin and you're not headed in the right direction together. But at the end of the day, what you said is exactly right. Banks want to get back to normal. They want they have a vested interest in keeping people in their homes and paying their mortgages because that's a far better proposition to them than a, you know, mass, um, what do you call it, when they kick you out of your Mass home? foreclosures, yeah. Foreclosures, yes. Um, so that they don't want to see that happen. Nobody wants to see that happen. So I think even though in September we're due to have these uh, stimulus measures and these support packages start to wind back, I don't think it's going to be um, a, a super drastic um rollout I think there'll definitely as you said there'll be a lot of thought put into how we're going to manage it in the most effective way and it is another one of those things that we're just going to have to wait and see uh, how things play out at this stage at the time of recording this podcast coronavirus is fairly well under control in this country we've had a tiny uptick in Victoria but overall across the country we're not seeing any indications of this much feared second wave mm. that they had talked about for so long so if that trend continues and we truly get coronavirus as a health risk behind us, then um, you know, all, then all energy can go back into getting the economy back on track and having everything flow out of that that we need. Um, so it'll be it'll certainly be a very interesting time ahead. Yeah, yes, it will. Uh, but I I would take the view that um, whilst whilst again, no one can predict the future with absolute certainty. We've, we've got to look at what's most likely to happen. And it is most likely that there will still be support in place and other other um, uh, stimulus measures put in place. I mean, we've just seen the home builder um, incentives brought out at the beginning of June, um, which are designed to help support um, the um, residential construction sector. 
through providing additional incentives to people to build their new home. And that seems to be getting a lot of interest um, and it could drive a lot of demand for um, blocks of land and new estates and new houses and the like. So there, that's just one new initiative, but there's bound to be others. And the other, yeah, the other thing we want to, to bear in mind as well is that, and this is often overlooked when people are considering the impact of the unwinding of some of these stimulus measures, is that we actually have, by historical standards, the lowest interest rates we've ever had in Australia. Um, and that goes a long way towards helping make it easier for people to manage the debt that they've got, even if they've taken a hit to income um, or say one partner's temporarily out of work. And mm. so, you know, if we look at what's happened in past times when unemployment's been high and you haven't had these sort of stimulus measures or, or um, uh, home loan deferral arrangements, um, we go back to the recessions in the early 80s and the early 90s, and even the GFC um, in 2008, 2009. If you look at what actually happened to property prices over that period of time, you didn't see a property market crash in spite of the fact that certainly in the recessions in the early 80s and early 90s, that unemployment got up over 10%, um, but it didn't collapse the property market. Uh, people find ways to manage what they've got. We've got to bear in mind that a lot of people who have lost their jobs at the moment, as tragic as that is, a big chunk of them are people like casual workers um, who probably aren't in the market for home ownership at the moment anyway. Um, so that's not to say there won't be people in financial stress or financial distress come September, October or into next year um, because of what's happened with their job situation and they may be carrying a mortgage. But I think it would be an extreme view to say that it's going to be so great that it will collapse the market. Historically, that's never happened um, in these sort of instances. Um, and like I said, the, uh, there's likely to be ongoing stimulus in some form or another. And I think that's the, kind of the only place we can go at the moment is to look historically at worst case scenarios. And we've lived through quite a few of them. And um, Australian property overall is quite a robust and resilient um, asset class, isn't it? So it's survived many, many things in the past and it will survive this. It's just a matter of how you can survive the course as it continues. Um, so education is your best friend, being continuing to educate yourself and really, I think, ask questions of the headlines and the news that you're reading um, and try to go beyond the headline and read the actual nuts and bolts of the article to make sure you're not getting taken on a ride that is, you know, landing you in the wrong destination. That's not quite right. Yeah, the, the worst thing you can do is read one of these headlines and make a panicked decision about, you know, your own investment properties or your own home as a result. Um, and I recall um, a few years back um, we, we had uh, certain US commentators coming out and running seminars and telling people that property prices were going to drop by 40%. And I received phone calls from people who had sold their homes as a result mm. of that. And then 12 months later had realized what a mistake that had been because they could no longer buy back into the market because prices, instead of going down, had actually gone up yeah, in the meantime. That's so isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And we saw the, the, the same thing um, in 2018 where we had a wonderful piece of um, journalism uh, that, that, um, hit the news. I think it was a, a 60 Minutes show that was headed up um, 
housing prices to plunge by as much as 40% in the next 12 months. And that was back in September 2018. Now, that clearly didn't happen. Um, and yeah. whilst property prices softened in 2018, leading into early 2019, they reversed following the election um, and ended up much higher. Um, but again, I, I had the same sort of thing with people panicked by that, that article emailing me and calling me going, what do I do? Um, because they didn't understand the facts behind the clickbait of the, the headline. So we've got to be so cautious about that um, and make smarter decisions. We also need to think about the opportunity, though, that a time like this represents. I mean, Sarah, if you could go back in time to the GFC um, when property prices did dip by you know, around about 5 to 10% in many areas, not all areas, but many areas, experienced that sort of a dip in prices temporarily. If you could have bought into that dip, how much better off would you be now? Yeah, exactly. And it's it, it's when you can, um, but, you know, when every everything seems uncertain, it's when, that's when people make the most money, isn't it? When they can see pass through all that uncertainty and take decisive action, that's when they secure their assets that set them up for a financial future versus the panic selling people that sell when they don't need to or people that sell out of fear that everything's going to get worse. They're the ones that end up five, ten years down the track looking back and wishing they'd made a different decision. Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, we all wish we had a time machine. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. We all wish we'd started earlier and that we bought earlier uh, or that we'd been able to buy into a particular low point in, in history in the, in the market. Um, because that just sets you up for success moving forwards. The, the point I'd like to make here, though, is that you don't need a time machine. You have that sort of environment right now where the heat has come out of the market in many areas um, and there are potentially great opportunities to buy in at a price that might not be available to you in two years from now. Yeah, especially with th this opportunity right now with interest rates so low, and if you're a first home buyer and you can get access to the the grants and the stamp duty relief that's on offer, um, you know, the first home buyer concessions, it's something like $80,000 worth of grants and rebates that you can get to get into your first home. So the opportunities on offer now, I think, will never be repeated. It's an incredible time to buy if you've got the deposit and you're in the right position to do it. And that's where I think speaking to experts is a really good idea because even if you're not ready right now, speaking to someone that knows what they're doing is going to help you get into the position to be ready to buy in the next 6 to 12 months, isn't it? That's right. And I'm quite confident that there will be people who look back in two or three years' time from now and wish they'd acted and so the, those investors who can get their finances in order, who've got the disciplines to have you know, built a bit of deposit capital, have their debts under control, um, and have the ability, therefore, to transact in the current market, can see some pretty amazing opportunities. Um, just a, as an example, I mean, we've had people in our in mentoring program recently who've, who've achieved discounts of 10 20% under asking price just by understanding the timing in the market, being in a position to act, setting themselves up, obviously doing their due diligence, which is all important. You don't just buy something for the sake of buying it. You buy it because it makes financial sense to do so. But being able to get in there and take advantage of these conditions and set themselves up for massive future success, it, it is actually a really exciting time. But you have to have the ability to see past the alarmist headlines to see the true opportunity that's really going on beneath the surface here. Absolutely. I think 
that's a perfect um, note to end this podcast on is looking for the opportunity amidst the crisis, I think is a great um, kind of way to look at this because there's always going to be external factors that can influence your property investments. But if you take that long-term view and you buy now, I mean, those who buy now with a view of not wanting to sell for at least 10 or 15 years, um, they're not going to be worried about what property does in the next six to 12 months. It actually wouldn't even matter if property values fell 30% in the next 12 months, because if you're not selling, then that's not going to impact you. As long as you've got that longer timeline and you've you know, really clearly researched the market, done your due diligence, and you've got a really clear goal in mind, um, those little shorter bumps along the road are not really going to impact you. Yeah, that's fair. And I'd also add to that that, you know, as long as you buy smart, if you if you can understand how to look at those dynamics that we talked about earlier in the podcast, um, understanding that balance of supply and demand and the trends within the individual suburb, you can even mitigate your risk against suddenly having a, a big price fall because you won't buy into an, an area where the dynamics are suggesting it is going to fall for a continual period. Instead, you'll buy into areas that make sense because their dynamics are indicating that prices will be at least stable in the short term um, or will bounce back rapidly um, come the back end of this pandemic. And there will be plenty of suburbs that fit that bill. Um, you've just got to be prepared to put in a little bit of effort, see the opportunity for what it is, um, and set yourself up so that you can take advantage of that and get the gains from that uh, in the not too distant future at all. That's the thing. Research is key, isn't it? Research and education is going to be your key ally to get you through this. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Simon. It's always great to chat and get some insights and clear up some of these um, headlines that can muddy the waters for investors. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us today. It's a pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yip Talk. For more from Simon and the team at Results Mentoring, visit them at resultsmentoring.com. That's resultsmentoring.com for more insight and guidance through these uncertain times.